Section 1 of Part 3 of Religious Affections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew James Gray, mjgray.id.au. Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Section 1 of Part 3. Part 3. Showing what are distinguishing signs of truly gracious and holy affections. I come now to the second thing appertaining to the trial of religious affections, which was proposed, viz. to take notice of some things wherein those affections that are spiritual and gracious do differ from those that are not so. But before I proceed directly to the distinguishing characters, I would previously mention some things which I desire may be observed concerning the marks I shall lay down. 1. That I am far from undertaking to give such signs of gracious affections as shall be sufficient to enable any certainty to distinguish true affection from false in others, or to determine positively which of their neighbours are true professors and which are hypocrites. In so doing, I should be guilty of that arrogance which I have been condemning. Though it be plain that Christ has given rules to all Christians to enable them to judge of professors of religion whom they are concerned with so far as is necessary for their own safety, and to prevent their being led into a snare by false teachers and false pretenders to religion, and though it be also beyond doubt that the Scriptures do abound with rules which may be very serviceable to ministers in counselling and conducting souls committed to their care in things appertaining to their spiritual and eternal state, Yet it is also evident that it was never God's design to give us any rules by which we may certainly know who of our fellow professors are his, and to make a full and clear separation between sheep and goats, but that, on the contrary, it was God's design to reserve this to himself, as his prerogative. And therefore, no such distinguishing signs as shall enable Christians or ministers to do this are ever to be expected to the world's end. For no more is ever to be expected from any signs that are to be found in the word of God or gathered from it than Christ designed them for. 2. No such signs are to be expected that shall be sufficient to enable those saints certainly to discern their own good estate, who are very low in grace, or are such as have much departed from God and have fallen into a dead, carnal and unchristian frame. It is not agreeable to God's design, as has been already observed, that such should know their good estate, nor is it desirable that they should, but on the contrary, every way best that they should not. And we have reason to bless God that he has made no provision that such should certainly know the state that they are in, any other way than by first coming out of the ill frame and the way they are in. Indeed, it is not properly through the defect of the signs given in the word of God that every saint living, whether strong or weak, and those who are in a bad frame, as well as others, cannot certainly know their good estate by them. For the rules in themselves are certain and infallible, and every saint has, or has had, those things in himself which are sure evidences of grace. For every, even the least act of grace is so. But it is through his defect to whom the signs are given. There is a twofold defect in that saint who is very low in grace, or in an ill frame, which makes it impossible for him to know certainly that he has true grace 
by the best signs and rules which can be given him. First, a defect in the object, or the qualification to be viewed and examined. I do not mean an essential defect, because I suppose the person to be a real saint, but a defect in degree. Grace being very small cannot be clearly and certainly discerned and distinguished. Things that are very small, we cannot clearly discern their form or distinguish them one from another, though as they are in themselves, their form may be very different. There is doubtless a great difference between the body of man and the bodies of other animals in the first conception in the womb. But yet, if we should view the different embryos, it might not be possible for us to discern the difference by reason of the imperfect state of the object. But, as it comes to greater perfection, the difference becomes very plain. The difference between creatures of very contrary qualities is not so plainly to be seen while they are very young, even after they are actually brought forth as in their more perfect state. The difference between doves and ravens, or doves and vultures, when they first come out of the egg, is not so evident, but as they grow to their perfection, it is exceeding great and manifest. Another defect, attending the grace of those I am speaking of, is its being mingled with so much corruption, which clouds and hides it, and makes it impossible for it certainly to be known. Though different things that are before us may have in themselves many marks thoroughly distinguishing them from one another, yet if we see them only in a thick smoke, it may nevertheless be impossible to distinguish them. A fixed star is easily distinguishable from a comet in a clear sky, but if we view them through a cloud, it may be impossible to see the difference. When true Christians are in an ill frame, guilt lies on the conscience, which will bring fear and so prevent the peace and joy of an assured hope. Secondly, there is in such a case a defect in the eye, as the feebleness of grace and prevalence of corruption obscures the object, so it enfeebles the sight, it darkens the sight as to all spiritual objects of which grace is one. Sin is like some distempers of the eyes that makes things to appear of different colours from those which properly belong to them, and like many other distempers that put the mouth out of taste so as to disenable it from distinguishing good and wholesome food from bad, but everything tastes bitter. Men in a corrupt and carnal frame have their spiritual senses in but poor plight for judging and distinguishing spiritual things. For these reasons, no signs that can be given will actually satisfy persons in such a case. Let the signs that are given be never so good and infallible, and clearly laid down, they will not serve them. It is like giving a man rules how to distinguish visible objects in the dark. The things themselves may be very different, and their difference may be very well and distinctly described to him, yet all is insufficient to enable him to distinguish them because he's in the dark. And therefore, many persons in such a case spend time in a fruitless labour in poring on past experiences and examining themselves by signs they hear laid down from the pulpit, or that they read in books, when there is other work for them to do that is much more expected of them, which, while they neglect, all their self-examinations are like to be in vain if they should spend never so much time in them. The accursed thing is to be destroyed from their camp, 
and Achan to be slain. And until this be done, they will be in trouble. It is not God's design that men should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption and increasing in grace and obtaining the lively exercises of it. And although self-examination be a duty of great use and importance, and by no means to be neglected, yet it is not the principal means by which the saints do get satisfaction of their good estate. Assurance is not to be obtained so much by self-examination as by action. The Apostle Paul sought assurance chiefly this way, even by forgetting the things that were behind, and reaching forth unto those things that were before, pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, if by any means he might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And it was by this means chiefly that he obtained assurance. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 26 I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. He obtained assurance of winning the prize, more by running than by considering. The swiftness of his pace did more towards his assurance of a conquest than the strictness of his examination. Giving all diligence to growing grace by adding to faith, virtue, etc., is the direction that the Apostle Peter gives us, for making our calling and election sure, and having an entrance ministered to us abundantly into Christ's everlasting kingdom, signifying to us that without this our eyes will be dim, and we shall be as men in the dark that cannot plainly see things past or to come, either the forgiveness of our sins past, or our heavenly inheritance that is future and far off. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 to 11. Therefore, though good rules to distinguish true grace from counterfeit may tend to convince hypocrites, and be of great use to the saints in many respects, and among other benefits may be very useful to them to remove many needless scruples and establish their hope, yet I am far from pretending to lay down any such rules as shall be sufficient of themselves without other means to enable all saints to see their good estate or as supposing they should be the principal means of their satisfaction. 3. Nor is there much encouragement in the experience of present or past times to lay down rules or marks to distinguish between true and false affections in hopes of convincing any considerable number of that sort of hypocrites who have been deceived with great false discoveries and affections, and are once settled in a false confidence and high conceit of their own supposed great experiences and privileges. Such hypocrites are so conceited of their own wisdom and so blinded and hardened with a very great self-righteousness, but very subtle and secret under the disguise of great humility, and so invincible a fondness of their pleasing conceit of their great exaltation, that it usually signifies nothing at all to lay before them the most convincing evidences of their hypocrisy. Their state is indeed deplorable, and next to those who have committed the unpardonable sin. Some of this sort of persons seem to be most out of the reach of means of conviction and repentance. But yet the laying down good rules may be a means of preventing such hypocrites, and of convincing many of other kinds of hypocrites and God is able to convince even this kind, and his grace is not to be limited, 
nor means to be neglected. And besides, such rules may be of use to the true saints to detect false affections, which they may have mingled with true, and be a means of their religions becoming more pure and like gold tried in the fire. Having premised these things, I now proceed directly to take notice of those things in which true religious affections are distinguished from false. 1. Affections that are truly spiritual and gracious do arise from those influences and operations on the heart which are spiritual, supernatural, and divine. I will explain what I mean by these terms, whence will appear their use to distinguish between those affections which are spiritual and those which are not so. We find that true saints, or those persons who are sanctified by the Spirit of God, are in the New Testament called spiritual persons, and their being spiritual is spoken of as their peculiar character, and that wherein they are distinguished from those who are not sanctified. This is evident because those who are spiritual are set in opposition to natural men and carnal men. Thus the spiritual man and the natural man are set in opposition one to another. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. The scripture explains itself to mean an ungodly man, or one that has no grace by a natural man. Thus the Apostle Jude, speaking of certain ungodly men that had crept in unawares among the saints, verse 4 of his epistle, says, chapter 5, verse 19, These are sensual, having not the Spirit. This the Apostle gives as a reason why they behaved themselves in such a wicked manner as he had described. Here, the word translated sensual in the original is sukikoi, which is the very same which in those verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is translated natural. In the like manner, in the continuation of the same discourse in the next verse but one, spiritual men are opposed to carnal men, which the connection plainly shows mean the same as spiritual men and natural men in the foregoing verses. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, i.e. as in a great measure unsanctified. That by carnal the apostle means corrupt and unsanctified is abundantly evident by Romans chapter 7 verse 25 and chapter 8 verses 1, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 19, 13. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 to the end. Colossians chapter 2 verse 18. Now therefore, if by natural and carnal in these texts be intended unsanctified, then doubtless by spiritual, which is opposed thereto, is meant sanctified and gracious. And as the saints are called spiritual in scripture, so we also find there are certain properties, qualities, and principles that have the same epithet given them. So we read of a spiritual mind, Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, and of spiritual wisdom, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, and of spiritual blessings, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. 
Now it may be observed that the epithet spiritual in these and other parallel texts of the New Testament is not used to signify any relation of persons or things to the spirit or soul of man as the spiritual part of man in opposition to the body, which is the material part. Qualities are not said to be spiritual because they have their seat in the soul and not in the body. For there are some properties that the scripture calls carnal or fleshly, which have their seat as much in the soul as those properties that are called spiritual. Thus it is with pride and self-righteousness, and a man's trusting to his own wisdom, which the apostle calls fleshly. Colossians chapter 2 verse 18. Nor are things called spiritual, because they are conversant about those things that are immaterial and not corporeal. For so was the wisdom of the wise men and princes of this world conversant about spirits and immaterial beings, which yet the apostle speaks of as natural men, totally ignorant of those things that are spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But it is with relation to the Holy Ghost, or Spirit of God, that persons or things are termed spiritual in the New Testament. Spirit, as the word is used to signify the third person in the Trinity, is the substantive of which is formed the adjective spiritual in the Holy Scriptures. Thus Christians are called spiritual persons because they are born of the Spirit and because of the indwelling and holy influences of the Spirit of God in them. And things are called spiritual as related to the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Here the Apostle himself expressly signifies that by spiritual things he means the things of the Spirit of God, and things which the Holy Ghost teacheth. The same is yet more abundantly apparent by viewing the whole context. Again, Romans chapter 8 verse 6, To be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The Apostle explains what he means by being carnally and spiritually minded in what follows in the ninth verse, and shows that by being spiritually minded he means having the indwelling and holy influences of the Spirit of God in the heart. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, it so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The same is evident by all the context, but time would fail to produce all the evidence there is of this in the New Testament. And it must be here observed that, although it is with relation to the Spirit of God and his influences that persons and things are called spiritual, Yet not all those persons who are subject to any kind of influence of the Spirit of God are ordinarily called spiritual in the New Testament. They who have only the common influences of God's Spirit are not so called in the places cited above, but only those who have the special, gracious and saving influences of God's Spirit, as is evident because it has been already proved that by spiritual men is meant godly men in opposition to natural, carnal, and unsanctified men. And it is most plain that the apostle by spiritually minded, Romans chapter 8 verse 6, means graciously minded. And though the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, which natural men might have, are sometimes called spiritual, because they are from the Spirit, 
Yet natural men, whatever gifts of the Spirit they had, were not, in the usual language of the New Testament, called spiritual persons. For it was not by men's having the gift of the Spirit, but by their having the virtues of the Spirit, that they were called spiritual, as is apparent by Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Meekness is one of those virtues which the Apostle had just spoken of in the verses next preceding, showing what are the fruits of the Spirit. Those qualifications are said to be spiritual in the language of the New Testament, which are truly gracious and holy and peculiar to the saints. Thus, when we read of spiritual wisdom and understanding, as in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, we desire that ye may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, hereby is intended that wisdom which is gracious and from the sanctifying influences of the Spirit of God. For doubtless, by spiritual wisdom is meant that which is opposite to what the Scripture calls natural wisdom, as the spiritual man is opposed to the natural man. And therefore, spiritual wisdom is doubtless the same with that wisdom which is from above, that the Apostle James speaks of, James chapter 3, verse 17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, etc. For this the Apostle opposes to natural wisdom. Verse 15, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly and sensual. The last word in the original is the same that is translated natural in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. So that although natural men may be the subjects of many influences of the Spirit of God, as is evident by many scriptures, as Numbers chapter 24 verse 2, 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 10, and chapter 11 verse 6, and chapter 16 verse 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 1, 2, and 3, Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4, 5, and 6, and many others. Yet they are not, in the sense of the scripture, spiritual persons, neither are any of those effects, common gifts, qualities, or affections, that are from the influence of the Spirit of God upon them, called spiritual things. The great difference lies in these two things. 1. The Spirit of God is given to the true saints to dwell in them as his proper lasting abode, and to influence their hearts as a principle of new nature, or as a divine supernatural spring of life and action. The scriptures represent the Holy Spirit not only as moving and occasionally influencing the saints, but as dwelling in them as his temple, his proper abode and everlasting dwelling place. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16, John chapter 14 verses 16 and 17. And he is represented as being there, so united to the faculties of the soul, that he becomes there a principle or spring of new nature and life. So the saints are said to live by Christ living in them. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Christ by his spirit not only is in them, but lives in them. And so that they live by his life. So is his spirit united to them as a principle of life in them. They 
do not only drink living water, but this living water becomes a well or fountain of water in the soul, springing up into spiritual and everlasting life. John chapter 4 verse 14, and thus becomes a principle of life in them. This living water, this evangelist himself explains to intend the Spirit of God. Chapter 7 verses 38 and 39. The light of the Son of Righteousness does not only shine upon them, but is so communicated to them that they shine also and become little images of that sun which shines upon them. The sap of the true vine is not only conveyed into them, as the sap of a tree may be conveyed into a vessel, but is conveyed as sap is from a tree into one of its living branches, where it becomes a principle of life. The Spirit of God being thus communicated and united to the saints, they are from thence properly denominated from it and are called spiritual. On the other hand, though the Spirit of God may many ways influence natural men, yet because it is not thus communicated to them as an indwelling principle, they do not derive any denomination or character from it, for there being no union, it is not their own. The light may shine upon a body that is very dark or black, and though that body be the subject of the light, yet because the light becomes no principle of light in it, so as to cause the body to shine, hence that body does not properly receive its denomination from it, so as to be called a lightsome body. So the Spirit of God acting upon the soul only, without communicating itself to be an active principle in it, cannot denominate it spiritual. A body that continues black may be said not to have light, though the light shines upon it. So natural men are said not to have the spirit, Jude 19, sensual or natural, as the word is elsewhere rendered, having not the spirit. 2. Another reason why the saints and their virtues are called spiritual, which is the principal thing, is that the spirit of God, dwelling as a vital principle in their souls, there produces those effects wherein he exerts and communicates himself in his own proper nature. Holiness is the nature of the Spirit of God, therefore he is called in Scripture the Holy Ghost. Holiness, which is, as it were, the beauty and sweetness of the divine nature, is as much the proper nature of the Holy Spirit as heat is the nature of fire, or sweetness was the nature of that holy anointing oil, which was the principal type of the Holy Ghost in the Mosaic Dispensation. Yea, I may rather say that holiness is as much the proper nature of the Holy Ghost as sweetness was the nature of the sweet odour of that ointment. The Spirit of God so dwells in the hearts of the saints that he there, as a seed or spring of life, exerts and communicates himself in this his sweet and divine nature, making the soul a partaker of God's beauty and Christ's joy, so that the saint has truly fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, in thus having the communion or participation of the Holy Ghost. The grace which is in the hearts of the saints is of the same nature with the divine holiness, as much as it is possible for that holiness to be, which is infinitely less in degree as the brightness that is in a diamond which the sun shines upon is of the same nature with the brightness of the sun, 
but only that it is as nothing to it in degree. Therefore Christ says, John chapter 3 verse 6, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit, i.e. the grace that is begotten in the hearts of the saints is something of the same nature with that Spirit, and so is properly called a spiritual nature, after the same manner as that which is born of the flesh is flesh, or that which is born of corrupt nature is corrupt nature. But the Spirit of God never influences the minds of natural men after this manner. Though he may influence them many ways, yet he never in any of his influences communicates himself to them in his own proper nature. Indeed, he never acts disagreeably to his nature, either on the minds of saints or sinners. But the Spirit of God may act upon men agreeably to his own nature, and not exert his proper nature in the acts and exercises of their minds. The Spirit of God may act so that his actions may be agreeable to his nature, and yet may not at all communicate himself in his proper nature in the effect of that action. Thus, for instance, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and there was nothing disagreeable to his nature in that action. But yet he did not at all communicate himself in that action. There was nothing of the proper nature of the Holy Spirit in that motion of the waters. And so he may act upon the minds of men many ways, and not communicate himself any more than when he acts on inanimate things. Thus, not only the manner of the relation of the Spirit, who is the operator, to the subject of his operations is different, as the Spirit operates in the saints, as dwelling in them, as an abiding principle of action, whereas he doth not so operate upon sinners, but the influence and operation itself is different, and the effect wrought exceeding different. So that not only the persons are called spiritual, as having the Spirit of God dwelling in them, but those qualifications, affections, and experiences that are wrought in them by the Spirit are also spiritual, and therein differ vastly in their nature and kind from all that a natural man is or can be the subject of, while he remains in a natural state, and also from all that men or devils can be the authors of. It is a spiritual work in this high sense, and therefore above all other works is peculiar to the Spirit of God. There is no work so high and excellent, for there is no work wherein God doth so much communicate himself, and wherein the mere creature hath, in so high a sense, a participation of God, so that it is expressed in Scripture by the saints being made partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 And having God dwelling in them, and they in God. 1 John chapter 4 verses 12, 15 and 16 And chapter 3 verse 21 And having Christ in them, John chapter 17 verse 21 Romans chapter 8 verse 10 being the temples of the living God, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16, living by Christ's life, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, being made partakers of God's holiness, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 10, having Christ's love dwelling in them, John chapter 17 verse 26, having his joy fulfilled in them, John chapter 17 verse 13, seeing light in God's light, and being made to drink of the river of God's pleasures, Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9, having fellowship with God, or communicating and partaking with Him, 
as the word signifies, 1 John chapter 1 verse 3. Not that the saints are made partakers of the essence of God, and so are godded with God and Christed with Christ, according to the abominable and blasphemous language and notions of some heretics, but, to use the scripture phrase, they are made partakers of God's fullness. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17, 18 and 19. John chapter 1 verse 16. That is, of God's spiritual beauty and happiness, according to the measure and capacity of a creature. For so it is evident the word fullness signifies in scripture language. Grace in the hearts of the saints, being therefore the most glorious work of God, wherein he communicates of the goodness of his nature, it is doubtless his peculiar work, and in an eminent manner above the power of all creatures. And the influences of the Spirit of God in this, being thus peculiar to God, and being those wherein God does in so high a manner communicate himself, and make the creature partaker of the divine nature, the Spirit of God communicating itself in its own proper nature, this is what I mean by those influences that are divine, when I say that truly gracious affections do arise from those influences that are spiritual and divine. End of section 1 of part 3 Recording by Matthew James Gray mjgray.id.au